Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. We've been kind of walking through the Gospel of John, uh, looking at, uh, as John records, all of the people and situations uh, in which people came to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, but before we uh, jump in, let me, let me ask a quick question, a uh, quick survey, a couple of questions long, and let me ask this. Uh, you do not have to raise your hand if you don't want to, like, share your personal stuff, but just a quick question. How many people have ever uh, just made a mistake, been wrong, made a mistake, done something wrong? Yeah, uh, most of us, it's kind of common. It happens. Uh, life goes on. But here's the next one. How many people have ever done something wrong but didn't know it was wrong? Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and, and here's an example. There was a, uh, I won't say her name, but there was a, a girl who used to go here. <coughs> and whenever we would go, <coughs> excuse me, hang out at Panera, you know the little cups they give you for water? She would get one of those and fill it with soda. And I asked her one time, I said, you know, that's, that's for water, right? You're not supposed to get soda out of it. She thought it was the sample size. Like at Costco, you know, you get samples. She thought it was just a sample size, and she wouldn't go back and refill it over and over. She just didn't want a whole, you know, 16 or 20-ounce soda, so she used to get those. And once, you know, told her, hey, that's not the way that works, she stopped because she honestly didn't know. So uh, it's possible. It happens. People do wrong things, even though we it never occurred to us that uh, uh, something wasn't wrong. Now, here's, here's another question. How many people have ever done something wrong and knew it was wrong, but we did it anyway. Yeah, thank you guys for being honest, because I didn't want to be the only one up here with my hand raised, and then people saying, well, what did you do, Pastor, for? Anyway, uh, but here, can we go a little bit deeper or darker, depending on stuff you did? But uh, how many people have ever done something wrong, knew it was wrong, and got caught? Wow. I thought somebody was going to say this yesterday count. But here, here's the thing. Um, there's actually a biblical term for the most common thing that people do wrong and get caught. It's called a speeding ticket. Most of us, we go out intentionally. No one's like, I didn't know the pedal went that fast. Most of us do it. Now, here's the thing that I did. You don't have to share one thing. I literally, I kid you not, not just making this up to make a point, high school, sophomore, year of high school, literally got caught smoking in the boys' room. Yeah, and smoking wasn't allowed in school, but literally got caught. And, and most of us, well, I shouldn't say most of us, but most of us, if we're honest and there is something, would say, yeah, there's, there's been some things that I have done wrong, and I knew they were wrong, and I probably shouldn't have been doing them. And then some of us would say, yeah, there's some things I, I knew I shouldn't have been doing it, and I got caught doing it. And um, I'm sure you're going to have some interesting conversations on the way home. But uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, this is one of those accounts where Jesus interacts one-on-one -on -one with someone, and it gets real. All right? Because he catches someone doing something wrong. He doesn't catch him, but it happens. And 
unlike most people, most people think when God sees you doing wrong, you know, he's going to judge you. He's going he's gonna to bring down fire and brimstone. And my brother, who passed away a few years ago, every time I try to, you know, he lives in Arizona, but every time I talk to him about going to church or whatever, say, no, I can't go to church. I've done so much wrong stuff in my life. God, as soon as I walked in the building, God would like just burn the building down or blow it up because I am just so such a bad person. And I would have to tell him over and over again, if God wanted that for you, he would have done that when you did it. He's not going to wait till you walk in the building. Because the reality is, when we did the wrong thing, God saw it. So uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to the um, Gospel of John, chapter 8. Now, let me share this with you quickly, though, because uh, this is one of those passages, and uh, depending on which Bible you have, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under your seat to the left or right, in front of you, back of you, somewhere. But depending on which, which translation of the Bible you read, uh, this is one of those times where there's uh, some of the translations there, they'll have a note in there that says the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses don't have this particular passage of Scripture. And, and here's what happens. Most theologians believe that, uh, yes, it probably did occur, but either John didn't want to record it because it didn't fit uh, with what he was talking about. And then one of John's disciples who knew it was true later came along and said, hey, uh, even though there's already been manuscripts that captured the Gospel of John, we need to include this. There are other people that say that, hey, uh, John wanted to include it, but it just didn't get included in all of the manuscripts. Uh, we don't know. And this is why I love the Bible, because we're... In our humanness, even though it's inspired by God, in our humanness, when we put it together, because this book is put together by humans, God didn't, you know, embroid this leather onto this uh, book. But when they put it together, they said, hey, this is something that, let's put a note in here just so people know. And I know there are, there, there, there are critics of the Bible that say, this is why you can't trust the Bible. And for me, this is exactly why I do trust it, because it's real. And it's authentic, and it's human. And where there's error, the Bible records it. And when there's uncertainty, the Bible records it. But where there's God speaking to people and pouring out his love on us, the Bible also records it. So uh, in John chapter 8, this is what we read. John chapter 8, verse 1, it says, uh, Jesus went down to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. Now this is still during... Uh, what they called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And a couple of months ago, we did a whole series on, on all the feasts. But this is the Feast of Tabernacles that was being celebrated. And it was a several-day feast. So he appeared again there in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, the teachers of the law... These were the same people who every time he showed up to speak, they would test him. They would, they would try to see, you know, is what he's saying real? But technically, these were like the theologians of that day. Now, for our comparison, unfortunately, these are like the theologians of our day, the ones where you can go buy books and they make millions of dollars off these books that say that, you know, God doesn't exist although they're calling themselves theologians. They say heaven doesn't exist. They say hell isn't real. And they say everyone, you know, can do what they want because God loves everyone and no one has to deal with the consequences. And they're called theologians. But they're not. 
because the word theologians literally means those people who understand and reveal and study the word of God. And just like the ones in our day are wrong, the ones in this day are wrong. But they came up and they were testing God and they brought in a woman caught in adultery. And, and that word caught, people kind of argue over whether she was caught in the act. And John makes it sound pretty clear, as you're going to see, that she was caught in the act of adultery. Not to let your mind go there because we're in church. Um, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him because they're like, hey, if you're, if you're, you know, a teacher of the law, Jesus, then you should be helping to fulfill the law and do what the law requires. And the law, um, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and this is a complete Jewish Bible version, says if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that is with the wife of a fellow countryman, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So according to the law, the man and the woman, because if they caught her in the act of adultery, she wasn't alone, they should have brought them both, but they only brought the woman. And according to the law, it said that they, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And the reason I use the complete Jewish Bible version is because it captures the wife of a fellow countryman. And it was signifying that, hey, this sin isn't just against God, it's against your brother. And then uh, in Deuteronomy, now Deuteronomy was written by Moses months before the Jews went into the promised land. And Moses was reiterating to this new generation of people, because the old generation had passed away, hey, just in case you guys didn't know and your parents didn't teach you, here is what God expects. And it says, if a man is found sleeping with a woman who has a husband, both of them must die, the man who went to bed with the woman and the woman too. In this way, you will expel such wickedness from Israel. And there are a lot of critics that say, see, you know what? Just because they make a mistake, God shouldn't kill them. And months ago, we also talked about the fact that God is sovereign, okay? Sovereign over the universe. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. No one, and, and I'm not going to get into this in great detail, but no one can die. God can't allow any person to die unless... They've already made up in their hearts what they're going to do with him. Because if they're going to reject him the moment they die, there's a destination. They're going to accept him the moment they die, there's a destination. So although people look at this as mean, if those people, you know, had repentant hearts when they died, they were immediately with Christ. If they had already accepted, and this is my position in my heart, I want nothing to do with God, then they went to that destination. But this is what they were saying, and this is what they were trying to hold Jesus to. Uh, when they said when they were trying to trap him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Verse seven. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, "If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her." And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, here's the thing: privately acknowledging somebody's sin, that's okay. If 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 I know Larry has a problem being physically or verbally abusive to Sharon, which probably couldn't happen because I think she could take him, but if it did, then it's not for me to say, hey, Larry, come up here and then announce to all of you what's going on in Larry's life. That's not cool. It is my place to go to Larry and say, hey, dude, let's go have some coffee. How are things going with you and Sharon? Is there anything? And, and to one-on-one -on -one 
try to help him, but that's not what they were doing. I don't get to publicly judge and condemn Larry because I'm guilty of sin. It may not be the same sin, but we are all guilty of sin. So Jesus made it clear. The one who gets to judge the sinner is the one who is without sin. So I can't stand and judge you because I have my own issues. I can't stand and judge Andrew because I have my own issues. Andrew can't judge Brandon because Andrew has his own issues. God gets to judge all of us because he has no sin issues. He's the one that gets to say, hey, here's what's going on with you, and here are the consequences for your sin. Now, at this, verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. Now, this, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, in the future, Larry asked you to build me a soapbox, because I need to get a soapbox, but this, and I know if you if you watch TV, you'll see lots of people, lots of protests going on for anything and everything, and, and here's the deal, protesting is okay if you're doing it legally. This nation was founded by a bunch of people saying to the governing authorities, hey, what you're doing isn't right. It's unjust, and we're not going to stand for it. And they protested. Not a problem with that, right? But when you extend the protest into violence and breaking the law, then it's wrong. Then it's not useful. And here's the thing. Uh, just like there, when you look on TV and you see the people who are starting to fight, it's not the older people that are doing this. It's not the older generation that are, like, lighting cars on fire and throwing garbage cans through windows. It's the younger generation. Because just like here, the older people, once Jesus said that, the older people were like, well, although she is guilty, I'm kind of guilty too. And they got it. And they were the first ones to walk away. The younger people were probably the ones still holding stones. Like, wait, I thought we were going to stone her. Where's a Starbucks window I can break? What's going on? Let's, let's get riled up. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. You don't get to judge. But here, let me, let me, let me finish this. So they were the only ones left. And in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that word condemn literally means to judge, to say that you are done this wrong, you're messed up, you're guilty, uh, you, 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 you are deserving of such and such punishment. But here's the thing, Jesus doesn't do that to us. That's, that's not how Jesus judges and, and looks at us. Now, we're all, uh, every one of us is guilty of sin. If we haven't done something yesterday, last week, or whatever, uh, we're, just the fact that we are born into sin, and we talked about that a while ago, that it, it's not, it's not a, a something we can avoid. Just like a person born, you know, in a third world country in the desert, nothing you can do. That's their condition. They're born into that condition. Our condition, condition of every person on the planet, we're all born into sin. And when Jesus looks at our sin, first thing he does when we sin, he, Jesus acknowledges, yeah, you're all guilty. We are all guilty. He looked at her and he said, yeah, somebody needs to stone her. Just not going to be any of you guys. You don't get that privilege. But he acknowledges we're all guilty of sin. Our first step is acknowledging, yes, we are all guilty of sin. But then Jesus takes it a step further and he takes a stand against those who try to publicize and criticize 
our sin struggle. Now, here's the thing. God is not in the business of humiliating and demeaning us. That's not what God wants to do. God is not in the business of trying to make you feel uh, insignificant and small and ridicule you and publicly humiliate you for your wrongdoing. That's not what he wants to do. Now, he was made to feel insignificant and publicly humiliated and ridiculed on our behalf when he didn't deserve it. So God takes a stand against those who wanted to criticize her and say, hey, you know what? Uh, let's publicize this act that she did. And I don't know, when we raised our hands a while ago, if you, the thing that you were caught doing, if it was something where you were dragged in front of a crowd of people and judged and humiliated for it, I don't know how that you would make me feel. Like I said, I got caught smoking in the boys' room, and you know, all I had to do was go see the dean and then later get a beating by my mom. I was 15, but she still thought a beating would work. Whatever. But I, I would not want the things that I've done wrong shown up here on the screen for everyone to say, yeah, let's stone Floyd because he screwed up. And that's not what God wants for us. So he takes a stand against those who try to publicly criticize our sin struggle. But then here's the beauty. He equips us to be victorious against our sin struggle. Now, he told her, you know, go forth and, and sin no more. Uh, no one's condemning you, even though he was the one who had the authority. And what he did for us is even more because for us, he died so that we don't have to deal with our sin struggle. In Romans chapter 5, here's what it says. While we were yet in weakness, is the amplified version, powerless to help ourselves, at the fitting time, Christ died for in behalf of the ungodly. That's all of us. That's every person who has ever been born on the planet. And if you're ever wondering, is anyone guilty of sin? Are they human? Were they born? Then check yes. And he says, it is extraordinary, an extraordinary thing for one to give his life even for an upright man, though perhaps for a noble and lovable and generous benefactor, someone might even dare to die. And the reason I put in the Amplified Version is because Paul is making a contrast between a righteous person Someone who, you know, think of the most righteous person you could think of. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, whoever, you know, John F. Kennedy, whatever figure you say, yeah, that was the right person who stood up for people. But then compare that to the person that you know, a good person, maybe a father or a mother or a child or someone that you know that is a good and honorable person. Uh, there's a difference between those people that, yep, they're, they're, they're a righteous person, but we don't have that connection. And that person who's good, who we know, who we can connect to. And then he makes that contrast by saying, but God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, died for us. One of the other verses says that while we were enemies of God, he died for us. He died for the people that, that, that pulled that woman out of bed. He died for the people that still was like, yeah, why can't we still stone her? He died for the people that confronted him and said, you're not God. Uh, what authority do you have to do this? He died for the people that loved him, that followed him, and even the ones who hated him and ridiculed him and criticized him. He died for all of them so that we don't have to deal with that sin struggle. Now, even though he died for that, uh, and you don't have to raise your hand because 
We've all been tempted by something, whether it's money, lust, power, alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, bad television, whatever you want to call it. We've all been tempted by something. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He writes, for no temptation, no trial regarded as enticing to sin, no matter how it comes or where it leads, has overtaken you and laid hold on you. That is not common to man. That is no temptation or trial has come to you. That is beyond human resistance. And that is not adjusted and adapted and belonging to human experience. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're tempted by. And James writes a book talking about, and he starts off the book of James talking about the fact that we're all tempted by different things. So someone may be tempted by, by lust, someone else may be tempted by greed, someone else may be tempted by power, someone else may be tempted by money, someone else may be tempted by alcohol, and the person that's tempted by alcohol uh, may never touch drugs, and a person who's tempted by drugs may be like, I am never going to drink that nasty stuff, and the person who's drinking is going, how can you stick a needle in your arms, and there's another person who's like, I'm never going to stick a needle in my arms, but I'm going to keep shoving stuff up my nose, and we're all tempted by different things. But what Paul says under the inspiration of God is all of that temptation is normal. It's common for stuff to try to pull you towards sin. But he says, but God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature, which is why we didn't see Jesus calling this woman out. He could have called her out because he said, I'm the only one here who hasn't sinned, so I have the authority to, but he didn't because of his compassionate nature. So he's true to his word and his compassionate nature, and he can be trusted not to let you be tempted and tried and assayed beyond your ability and strength of resistance and power to endure. But with the temptation, he will always, 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 every single time, always also provide the way out the means of escape to a landing place, that you may be capable and strong and powerful to bear up under it patiently. There are things that are going to come our way depending on what you're tempted with. Some people may be tempted to lie. Some, it may be whatever you're tempted with. God is always, 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 always going to provide a way out. But the question is, he gives us the freedom to avoid sin, but we have to make that choice. God is not in the business of forcing us to do anything. He's not in the business of manipulating us to do anything. But he is always in the business of providing freedom for us and a way out for us. And that's going to be difficult depending on what you're struggling with. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rob came up and he said, hey, there's, there's something uh, going on in my life that I, I want to share with the congregation. And um, I did not pick today's topic to go with what he was talking about. Uh, this, this has been on a, the books for months. Uh, it just worked out um, the way it worked out. So he's going to come up in here and share in a minute. But first, um, I'm going to show a quick video. So take a look at this. Good morning, guys. How you all doing today? I wanted to take a second, and I asked Pastor uh, a couple weeks ago to be able to speak with you guys, and just thank you so much for how you've helped my journey in the past 18 months. I chose this video, this video uh, by Audrey Assad, um, because of the, the, first, the first verse of Psalms, the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
um, it's just amazing. I found this information from James McDonald online, which I really thought was a nice way of looking at it, because a lot of people look at it only in one way, I shall not want. When David wrote, to, wrote in his famous song, I shall not want, it was a summary of the results of having the Lord as his shepherd. What he, what he does, what does it really mean that he shall not want? First, it means that he will not lack the basic needs in life. The big three, food, shelter, clothing, need to be, you don't need to be anxious about those things. God's going to provide those. Our initial response is such skepticism. What about those people that are hungry and homeless? There are a lot of them. How does God meet their needs? The answer comes in his word. 2 Corinthians 9-11. You will be enriched in every way to, the, to be generous in every way. When God supplies abundantly to us, he expects us to share with others. God uses his people to spread his blessings. You can probably think of occasions when God has helped you help others and that have others helped you. When there is something deeper, and there is something deeper than the basic needs of life in this word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Make note of this. I shall not want another shepherd. I shall not seek another master. The, ex the expert care of Master Jesus is all I desire. And I completely am content with his management of my life. Through my life, through my life is not perfect. Though my life is not perfect, and I can't read. Um, he, has, he has never failed me. He has been there been there through my disappointments and difficulties. He has always kept his promises. When I have sought him, I have found him. All that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I do not want another. Or, I shall not want to be also used about self-control. Think about the pain in life that was caused by wanting. I want this. I want that. I want to go there. Too many life hurt, life's hurts come from wanting what you don't have. But the longer I live, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I, I experience the profound ways, the truth, how shall not want, can be radically used in my everyday life. Love one no matter what the circumstances. And all I have, and you and I already have everything we already need. And my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19. Now, I asked for this time with you guys because 18 months ago, well no, 16 months ago, I came before you and let you know about my alcohol addiction. And I had taken steps to get myself better. Well... I wanted to come here as not a, a prayer request, but a praise request. And thank you for what you've helped me get through. Um, I am 18 months, 20 days sober. Now this journey has been, has been crazy because there's been a lot of things 
trying to trip me up, just like he does with any of us in our life. And I'm going off script, so um, it's if I lose my train of thought, that's normal. Um, but I was 18 months ago, I put myself in an inpatient treatment facility. I did that for 21 days, came out, did nine weeks worth of outpatient. And at that point, I thought my life, my treatment was over. I was ready to go. I was fixed. No, not even close. During that time frame, in the last 18 months, things you guys might not know. I did inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab. I was incarcerated in county jail. I was on house arrest with a regular ankle bracelet for three months where I could not go anywhere other than here, work, and, um, and my AA meetings. And for the past six months, I've been on what's called an alcohol monitor, which means every night when I go to bed, they send a signal and they know whether or not I've drank in the, last, in the past 24 hours. And I got it off this past Thursday. So I'm finally free of the courts. But now's whenever the real hard part starts. I, got, I don't have big brother following me. I have you guys to help me, my family at home, God. And I can't thank you enough for being there for me. And now's the true test. You know, I, uh, there are times that I have to get myself out of situations now because I know I don't have that thing. I, I, I don't have a crutch. I'm riding on two wheels without training wheels anymore. So with that, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. And I wish you all the best. You guys could run the last video. There's a uh, lot of commentary uh, in the Bible where Jesus would show up and he would do something like this. And he would step into someone's life and he would help them in their brokenness and their hurt. And what do you think the response of the people was? I mean, here's, here, here's Jesus saying, hey, here's a woman who he's literally set free and, and telling, you don't have to go live the life you used to live before. And how many people think that everyone was like, yay, go Jesus? Yeah, because no one was like, yeah, go Jesus. Because that culture, uh, what they were looking for, instead of stepping out, to help her instead of stepping out uh, uh, to, um, now here's the thing, they literally caught her in the act of adultery, right? Do you think they just happened to be walking by and looked in the window and like, hey, that's JoJo's wife. Yeah, but that ain't JoJo. What's going on there? Or do you think they possibly already knew what was going on? And instead of stepping in to help her and him and counsel her and him, they yanked her out of bed to criticize her, but not him. And, and here's the thing. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. The church is actually supposed to build people up, not tear them down. The church is supposed to be a place where uh, if I'm coming or if, 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 if Rob's come and say, hey, you know, here's what I'm going through, that rather than point him out and say, I don't want to be like him, we're supposed to surround him and say, all we're going to do is help him and love on him. And now, th this, this is the hard part to say, because like Rob said, this is the, the bracelet's off. He's, he, he's on his own now, and all he's got is his family and God and us. 
And that doesn't mean the temptation to go back to old habits isn't going to come. And he said, yes, how many, how, how long clean? 18 months clean. Now, it would be great if that turned into, you know, 36 months or 18 years. Because we're going to be around him, we're going to support him, we're going to be praying for him, and we're going to be encouraging him. But if it doesn't, then that's where we get to be the church that doesn't criticize him for falling, that doesn't judge him for falling, but picks him back up and says, day one, let's do it again, and helps him start over. Not that we're preparing for that, but should it come to that, we're going to be there like that. But hopefully every one of us is praying for not day one again, but 19th, 20th, or 36th month and on. Because that's what the church is all about. Now, when Jesus um, um, provided that level of, like, interaction with the woman, immediately, if you read through the rest of uh, chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, the people started criticizing him again. Why, what gives you the authority to do this? What gives you the right to step into, you know, her life and do this? Show us why, why you know, you're saying that you have the authority, but how do we know you have the authority? And we talked uh, the last couple of weeks about... Um, you know, Jesus showing his authority and God saying, yes, I give him the authority. And uh, not just the apostle John, but John the Baptist saying, hey, God, you know, Jesus is God and he has the authority. But, but I love this because this is what Jesus said. This is, I'm summarizing, you know, what he said in the, in the rest of that chapter. Uh, he said, those who are of my father, God, they're going to get it. They're going to know that God wants us to succeed. They're going to get it. But those who are not, they're not going to get it. Those who are filled with God's Holy Spirit and the children of God, we're going to get that whether you fall down, whether you get up, uh, whether you never make another mistake, or whether you have hundreds in your past and still a bunch in your future, that God wants you to succeed. And we're not here to tear you down, but we're here to lift you up. But those who don't get it, those are going to be the people that criticize you, judge you, and drag you out of whatever you fell into and put it up. And they're going to put it on Facebook. They're going to tweet about it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to laugh about it. But they're not going to help you through it. And we want to be the type of people that says, hey, I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to judge you. I will come to you personally and say, how can I help you? But I'm not going to publicize your stuff because I have my own stuff. And just like we all need God to help us through our stuff, I need you to help me with my stuff. Because we all have our own issues. So this is that, that, that what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. This is where we get to that point in the service and the celebration where we say, so what, what does this have to do with us? What does everything we talk about, how does that help me? And here's the reality, because if you're a Christian, right, uh, then you need to realize that God doesn't just equip us and say, I've got your back. He literally steps inside of us with his Holy Spirit and says, I am there with you with every struggle you're going to have. I'm going to provide you a way out. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to support you. And he surrounds us with Christ followers who are going through their own struggles, who hopefully will not be criticizing us, but will be there for us and support us. 
And if you're a Christ follower, hopefully, not only are you praying for Rob, but if you know other people, whether they're a Christian or not, who are going through stuff, instead of criticizing them and judging them and like, let me see if I can get a million likes on Facebook when I call out like John for his wrongdoing or call out Dennis for his wrongdoing or call out Geneva for her wrongdoing. Instead of that, hopefully you're the one going to John or Geneva or Dennis and saying, hey, how can I help you? Because I know you're going through something and I've gone through some stuff myself too. How can I help you? And if you're not a Christian, this, this is what, and I've had this conversation with people who criticize the church. If you're not a Christian, honestly ask yourself, do you want to be a part of a community that drags you out of bed and publicizes your wrongdoing? Or that comes alongside you and helps you and counsels you through your wrongdoing? Because that's what the church does. That's why God gives us his Holy Spirit. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we pray with one another. So I'm going to ask you guys to, um, I'm gonna ask you guys to stand. And I'm going to ask, uh, if we could get all the guys to come up here for a moment, because I'm going to ask Rob to come up. And uh, before we close out with a time of praise and worship, um, I, just, I just want us to... Just step down here for a minute. And I just want us to pray for him. And then we're going to close out in song. We may be running a little long. Apologize for that. God, we just want to uh, lift up. And as Rob said, we want to lift him up. But we also, first and foremost, we want to give praise and glory to you because we know it is because of you and your strength and your spirit that has gotten him this far. So we praise you for, first of all, as, as we just listened to that song, for the redemptive path that you have put him on. We praise you for your spirit, um, um, not condemning him for his wrongdoing, but showing him his wrongdoing. We praise you for the spirit that gave him to strength to acknowledge his wrongdoing. And God, we pray that you would help him and strengthen him. And when those tough times come, that through your spirit, through his family, through his friends, through your church, that you would have us there to lift him up, to encourage him, to strengthen him, that we would be the first to give him words of encouragement and praise and never words of condemnation or ridicule. God, we thank you for the people that you have put in his life. We thank you for uh, you being able to use his life to testify to your goodness and grace, to witness to others what you, Lord, are capable of, and to show your strength in his life. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.